Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the death of U.S. retail was grossly exaggerated. Coal shares climbing more than 7%, almost 8% now after reporting better than expected earnings. Target also uh, rallying. Joining us here to talk about that in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Bert Flickinger, Managing Director for Strategic Resource Group. So, Bert, it seems like uh, certainly Target and Kohl's and a number of others have surprised to the upside. Is this a sign that U.S. consumers are in good shape and that retail is coming back in brick and mortar form? Or is this a case of good management in a select number of cases. Lisa, to your point, uh, good management always always wins, particularly for the well-capitalized companies that are investing in technology, digital retail, and uh, really having what consumers want at the best possible prices. So as you and Paul have reported, off-prices winning, uh, Target's winning, Walmart's winning, uh, while a lot of the rest of the retail's losing. So, Bert, looking through the Kohl's uh, earnings statement, one of the things that was interesting is they, they called out their, I guess, their partnership with uh, Amazon uh, as being, you know, a, a con- contributor to growth. What, what actually are they doing with Jen? What is that joint venture or that partnership? It, it's a joint venture. Interestingly, Paul, something that uh, Target.com tried with Amazon uh, for seven years and it didn't work out. Uh, but uh, for because Amazon essentially got the tar- Target, uh, quote unquote, guest database and uh, they migrated a lot of those shoppers over to Amazon. But uh, with Kohl's uh, not having invested significant, sufficiently in digital, uh, the Amazon partnership in terms of uh, cross-platform, similar to what Richard Baker's doing with Hudson Bay, Hudson Bay uh, Sachs and the operating companies too, uh, it provides the customer base from combined companies and helps both uh, in- increase uh, units, customer accounts, sell through, whether it's digital uh, as well as fulfillment and store. So, so if, I, if I have a return from an Amazon, I can bring it to a coal store? You can bring it to a Kohl's store, and as Brian Cornell pointed out um, with uh, Bloomberg earlier this morning, 75% of all um, Target's digital sales are fulfilled in store. So uh, to your point, advantage Kohl's and advantage uh, Target too. How much is the rally that we're seeing and the uh, positive forecasts for the year from Kohl's and Target, how much is that a result of the bankruptcies of a number of retailers that we've seen from Jim Perry, uh, et cetera? Lisa, important point in, in Target's home markets, everything from Herberger's and Carson's division of the Bonton Company, uh, Payless on Deck, uh, and with Toys R Us and a number of other uh, key retailers affecting uh, shifting shoppers, the bankruptcy. Have, have been half of Target's increase in, in our estimation, and that makes Kohl's 1% same-store comparison sales okay, but not re- not really that good. This is really fascinating to me. This, to me, is, is a really important story. We're finally slowly starting to see uh, the denouement of some of these struggling retailers going out of business, and this is helping the healthier retailers survive and thrive. Where are we in the cycle of bankruptcies for retailers? Can we finally see the regrowth of this industry? Lisa, we're about three-fifths of the way through, so Target will benefit the most uh, from the bankruptcies of a lot of food 
and drug retailers. We're hoping for the best, fearing for the worst with Rite Aid. Uh, obviously, Target's going to be the big beneficiary there. And from the mid-tier to moderate uh, department stores and Sears uh, Kmart, which actually uh, had fairly good soft, soft goods, uh, Target's still the big beneficiary. So uh, tar Target's still a little bit uh, further than halftime and benefiting, but Target's biggest benefit is really marketing, merchandising value, branding, own label. And with the political elections taking media costs to unprecedented uh, proportions in 19 and the year 2020, Target has some of the most effective ads, digital connective, uh, social, uh, outdoor, uh, radio, TV, as, as does Walmart. And the effectiveness and the great copy and the creative with uh, Target as well as Walmart is really helping both win. And it gets to what you guys were saying, uh, management leadership wins every time. It's interesting. You, I, I like that, the, the concept of you know three-fifths of the way through kind of dealing with this consolidation of the industry. Does that also relate to the number of stores, the global, the U.S. footprint of stores? Are we three-fifths of the way through rationalizing just the number of stores and the, and the footprint? We're probably only two-fifths of the way okay. through. So That's we're going from, one, right? <laughs> from about 40%, uh, 400% overstored to about 200%. Uh, but Paul, what you and uh, Tom Keene and Arthur Levitt were talking about on surveillance and you, Lisa, and Carol Masser uh, and Jason Sweeney were talking about uh, later for retail with medical marijuana. Arthur Levitt was saying the sales tax in Denver was 32 million. So obviously the sales are a huge multiple of that. So medical marijuana may actually drive customer counts into the pharmacies of the Target, CVS, in-store pharmacies. Uh, won't help Coles, yeah, uh, but could, could help others. Yeah, you talk about that all the time, Paul. Just can't help yourself. <laughs> when they legalize marijuana, that's just going to make Rite Aid shares surge, right? No, nah, it might not. <laughs> Save right <laughs> soon enough. Well, I, I guess that uh, you know, I'm just wondering what's taking so long. What will what will hurry this cycle up and allow retail to kind of uh, get its bearings and grow again? The, for them to really grow, uh, they have to do what uh, Target's doing. Target to the company's credit, has the greatest uh, gender uh, so social uh, diversity across its management group. So arguably one of the best uh, leadership teams in retail worldwide. And in a declining birth rate, declining family formation, Target's getting more of the uh, parents with young children and with a pet population with dogs and cat adoptions growing four times faster than the birth rate for people. Target's getting uh, babies, pets, and lifetime loyalty from consumers of all languages and all United Nations of consumer constituencies. I, I got to be honest with that with you, Paul. I mean, when I was dealing with babies, Target <laughs> was amazing because you could get the diapers, you could get clothes that weren't going to cost you a crazy amount, yep. uh, all in the same place, and you could get shampoo and conditioner. I, I, that was actually a very, very <laughs> positive bad. development. Well, I think Bert, Bert just gave us the, the stat of the day with the f pets four times the growth rate of the uh, human population. I didn't know that. But really? Yeah, that people actually are, are adopting more pets now than, than having children there's gotta in be any the, given year. Well, there's got to be an investment play there. I, but I, so yeah. you go to the stores that have the biggest pet departments, I guess. Yeah, and it, and it gets to your, your leadership point, Paul, is PetSmart uh, is on Moody's list of 17 retailers that could go bankrupt this year. Uh, less capable, undercapitalized, where uh, Target, Walmart, it, even though they're not category dominant in pet, it's a uh, sole source destination. They're still winning with pets uh, more than PetSmart is. 
Really interesting. Do you have a pet? Uh, son uh, Nick and wife Ashley have two rescue pets, uh, Reggie and Bo, and look at pupperwestsiders.com for Nick's pet blog on rescue pets. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to turn into a discussion of pets, but you never know where retail is going to Retail increasingly. This is actually a sign of the times, Paul. Take this to heart. This has been the transformation. People would rather have a dog than a kid. <laughs> 3.4 million pet adoptions every year. Oh, that's been, All right. Another stat of the day. Bert, uh, Bert Flickinger, thank you so much. Bert is the Managing Director, Strategic Resource, uh, Resource Group. He joined us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. This may be the year of unicorn initial public offerings. We are expecting uh, Lyft to start their roadshow and get their initial public offering off the uh, off off often get this on track. A question here is how active will this year be and how much will these companies be valued at? Joining us now to answer some of those questions, Atish Davda, Chief Executive Officer of Equity Zen, uh, based in New York. Equity Zen is a fascinating company that basically enables, if I'm getting this right, enables uh, individuals to transact in private shares ahead of these IPOs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. Look, we're not uh, inventing anything that didn't exist 100 years ago. Effectively, what we're doing is taking something that was only available for people that could write a $10 million check. It's a private company. I know the company. I want to, you know, everyone I know uses this company. I'd like to invest before the IPO. Uh, if you don't have 10 million bucks, it's really hard for you to get a seat at the table. Uh, through EquityZen's platform, qualified investors can purchase the shares before the company goes public. So, is this basically a price discovery mechanism whereby companies can figure out, huh, now might be the time to go public? That's definitely a very you know big value offering that companies get. The other thing that a, a lot of companies benefit from by using a platform like EquityZen is, hey, look, you know, we thought Q4 2018 was going to be a great time to go public, but guess what? The markets turned volatile, so we're going to wait another six, 12 months to go public. But I told all my employees that we're going to go public in 2018. So let me allow the secondary platform to give them a little bit of liquidity and basically fine tune exactly when I'm going to go public, keep the employees happy, get outside uh, shareholders excited. Uh, And me as a company, I didn't have to take any dilution in order to conduct the secondary transaction. So 2019 is going to be presumably a huge year for tech IPOs and for your company as well. We've got Lyft, we've got Uber, we've got Airbnb, presumably. Let's focus on Lyft. You know, we, we saw the prospectus come out last week. I think they had trailing revs of about $2.2 billion, yet they want to raise 20 to $25 billion. Is that kind of valuation 10 times revenue or 12 times revenue? Is that reasonable in this market? Well, you know, if you take a look at Lyft's only competitor, which is a private company, Uber, uh, it's it, it's not even, a, a, you know, a fair comparison. Uber is this Goliath, you know, $11 billion in revenue. It's in over half the countries out there. It's It's got Uber Eats. It's got five other business lines. Lyft is a pure play ride hail company uh, focused on U.S. and Canada. There's got a lot of growth uh, that Lyft is able to demonstrate 100% year over year. Uh, it's got shrinking net loss margins, which is always nice to see for a tech company to go public. I think it's got a pretty exciting valuation for a company that many of us, especially here in the U.S. and Canada, um, have on our phones, if not have at least uh, seen friends use it. Atish, there has been an argument made that fewer companies in the U.S. 
are uh, filing for initial public offerings. They're waiting longer to do so. That sort of uh, the idea of U.S. public equities as being a, a way to access the dynamism of the U.S. economy is sort of fading as a promise. And I'm just wondering if these if these unicorns can access private capital and can even offer their employees liquidity on a secondary market for their shares before an IPO, why go public? Why go public? That's a great question. Look, I think there's still uh, the vast majority of the world that cannot access these private markets. You know, you have to be an accredited investor. The SEC has some guidelines. These are risky investments at the end of the day. So still the vast majority of the world can't access it and Lyft and many other consumer companies. Spotify is a great example last year where, you know, it's got tens of millions of people using it. But if the vast majority of its client base can't even buy its own stock, well, then there's a little bit of a disconnect, right? And a lot of these companies, Lyft included, are mission-driven companies. A decent amount of its S1 is talking about how the founder's letter and the founder's mission. Uh, they really want to be able to maintain that brand image. Not only is it a rite of passage to go public these days, but guess what? You, as a public company, can qualify for a lot of these institutional long-term investors, these pension funds, mutual funds, anchor investors that look at 10-year horizons, not you know Monday to th- through Thursday. Well, the big issue I think that both ride-hailing companies might have, and I'd love to get your opinion, is they're not even remotely close to profitable. Lyft, I mean, Lyft lost almost, I guess, $900 million on $2.2 million of revenues. Uber's not profitable. And I think one of the big issues that investors have not had to deal with before, whether it's Facebook or you know, Google, is the subsidies that they're paying to these drivers for market share. Do you have a sense of have, when, when these companies think they will be uh, profit? Well, they are uh, driving closer and closer towards profitability. I think in this day and age, uh, a lot of folks uh, are almost accepting of high growth companies who are willing to lose capital in order to grow market share. Um, What they're going to have to continue showing these companies is a path to sustainable profitability like Lyft. Uh, had a 200% net income margin two years ago. Its net income margin was negative 65% last year. It's down to 40 and change, 43% this year. Uh, Uber's gone down to 30%. So I think they are moving towards uh, profitability. But look, there's only one, you know, I think the Lyft's prospectus said only 1% of all miles driven in the U.S. Uh, are actually using one of these ride hail services. So there's clearly a long way to go. And I think they're in no hurry to try and uh, capture the share. 20 seconds. What's your estimate for IPOs this year? Uh, we think there's going to be uh, uh, five blockbuster IPOs and they're all available on, uh, you know, Equities Ends 2019 IPO Outlook. Uh, but we're not going to see the record number of IPOs. They're going to be the names that everyone's been waiting for for the last 10 years. And they're going to be huge. They're going to be. This, it's going to be a great year, I think, for uh, IPO bankers on Wall Street. Atish Davda, Chief Executive Officer of Equity Zen, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, you know, I think it's uh, this Lyft deal is going to be very important um, for the tech markets to start off the year right uh, and to get a good uh, trade going. So we'll have to see how it goes. And then, of course, Uber will follow it up and then Airbnb and some others. Well, equity investors, what to do? We've had about a 37% round trip from that December decline back up to the outperformance we've had here in 2019 with the S&P up about 11% year to date. 
the question is what to do. So to help us answer some of those questions is Sean Matthews, Chief Executive Officer from Hondius Capital Management. Sean was also the former CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald. Sean, thanks for being in our studios. Once again, he's in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York with us. So is it time to take money off the table? Sell. Sell. <laughs> okay, we're done. If you have a shorter term view, so if you've got a 20-year view, stocks make sense and it's perfectly fine. But if you have a year or less view, certainly taking chips off the table make a lot of sense here. Right now, we came into the year long risk assets and thought it was a great opportunity. But once you got to a, a deal or a quasi-deal that's coming out right now uh, with China, it makes sense just to de-risk. Sean, can we talk about Hondias Capital Management? Because I've known you for years, um, really as the CEO of Cancer Fitzgerald, and you've been at brokerages for years, and then you went off in uh, 2018 last year to start your own hedge fund. How's it been going? It's been going well. Look, the the markets are an interesting opportunities. So if you look at the opportunity sets for a typical hedge fund, with zero interest rates and correlated assets, they were very low. And going forward, the next five years, you're going to see a decoupling of assets. You're going to see central banks changing their stances, certainly going back and forth, which creates interesting opportunities. So you're going from two opportunities a year to kind of six or seven or eight opportunities a year. But we were uh, listening to Bill Gross, who was speaking on Bloomberg Television earlier. He was retiring, of course, from Janus and the famed uh, bond investor for PIMCO. He was saying he thinks that the era of generating alpha, true alpha, is kind of coming to an end. I, I think deal? that's a misnomer. So there's always going to be alpha out there. The, the machines have taken some of that away, but you have to understand how to trade against the machines as well. So there will be interesting opportunities. So last five years, there was no alpha, certainly. Next five years, I think there's going to be interesting opportunity and real alpha that's out there that's going to be generated because pricing, and look, we look at typical assets, pricing has been very benign because volatility has been low. As volatility picks up, you're going to have large discrepancies in pricing. You don't have enough capital sitting in the middle. So the typical Wall Street firms had plenty of capital to be a true middleman and create orderly markets. That's gone. So there's going to be less capital there because the return on equity for those firms has gone down substantially over the last five to 10 years. So someone's going to have to step in and take advantage. So of where do you think you're going to be playing in the next two or three years in terms of the fixed income and equity markets, maybe pushing out on the risk curve to EM or something like that? Yeah, I, I think you have to be opportunistic. And if we look at the the global macro picture, you're starting to see some clear delineation of what's going on out there. So Europe's in a funk. I think the next 30 years, it's going to be in a funk and it's got real problems. But you start to look at Asia, especially after the tariff deal, there's going to be interesting opportunities there. You look at the U.S. as well. I, I mean, I, I think if as a trader, you look at the marketplace right now, you'd probably want to be short equities here at some point in time for a short term trade, not a long term trade, but short term. OK, so if you go short equities, are you going short individual names or are you going short broad indexes? Yeah, you look at broad indexes, right? Because, you know, getting down to that level of each individual stock that takes a lot of analysis and understanding. You really want to understand what are the liquidity going on, 30,000 feet, what's going on in the marketplace from a high level, and then working your way down. All right. So, uh, Sean Matthews, what are you looking for as the uh, as sort of the trigger time to short stocks here? And then what are you looking for to say, okay, they're a go again? I, I think the, the market is right now going to look at earnings going forward and look at global growth. 
And right now, no one knows really what's going on. So earnings, if you talk to any particular person, you can range from zero to 10% this year, right? That's an amazing number if you think about it, how wide the distribution is of that. So I think you have to get to a point of looking at where the market is, where global growth is gonna be, and then make that determination. Right now, we've run up 12% in the S&P so far this year. I mean, you look at European stocks, they're up huge. Why? So they're going into they're going to in a recession. Half of Europe is going to be in a recession, you know, in 2020. So what happened in December? Was that just a bad dream for the marketplaces or there's should we be pulling out some nuggets of real truth out of that December swoon? I think you had the algorithms actually kick in, right? So again, when we look at liquidity characteristics of the market, they have changed because the market is not going to be as orderly as it has been in the past. And when there's zero interest rates and, and everyone is looking at it saying, okay, we can stay long risk assets for as long as possible, it makes a lot of sense to continue to stay long. Once you get to a point where there's fear in the marketplace, you're going to see large price discrepancies. And Wall Street used to be great as a, as a middleman and really an orderly market participant. And once that leaves, the whole you know, marketplace starts to look very different. And I think the next five years will look very different than the last five. How, how has fundraising been for you? We, we can't talk about that. So. No, no, no. But in terms of when you go to clients, are they looking for alternatives? Are they looking for, you know, what are they looking for from I, hedge funds? I think they're looking for people who are going to drive alpha, right? So there's been so little alpha out there that they're now looking at opportunities to not just be a market participant. And, and let's face it, if you look at the hedge fund community, they've probably steered more towards trying to keep their management fee in place than actually drive alpha. So that, that change, I think, is going to happen as well. The reason why I ask is because we're actually getting some indications that flows have, have stabilized after years of outflows from hedge funds, and that you're actually starting to see some inflows again, and certainly redemptions have stopped. And that was sort of, I'm just wondering if that jives with your experience, that the people who are still looking for alternatives uh, know what, what the ups and downs are. Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're, everyone is right now trying to figure out we probably live in a mid-single-digit equity world going forward the next five or 10 years. That's drastically different than the last 10. So in a low-return environment, everyone is looking for ways to drive higher returns. So I know Bill Gross was mentioning that he thinks you know the hedge funds will have to really be creative in terms of maybe infrastructure investing, uh, hard commodities, buying timber, for example. Do you share that view that you're going to need more tools in a toolbox for the average hedge fund manager? I think depending on what your mission is, certainly more tools are better than less. Um, I think the markets have always looked for opportunities and hedge funds have always looked for opportunities. Uh, you know, they may come in different forms, but it's not just about buying QCIPs at some point in time. It's also about looking for other things. Sean, 20 seconds. What's the next move for uh, treasury yields up or down? Big move. I, I think the long end of the curve actually goes up. Um, not, not big. I mean, it's probably 50 basis points. Uh, so you could see a 360, 370 long bond, um, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a big move at all. And and I think the fixed income market and certainly the Govy space has been really cautious about what's going on in the world and looking at global growth and saying this is a tough environment. So I think you'll start to see steeping of yield curves. Interesting. Sean Matthews, thank you so much for being here. Sean thank Matthews, you. CEO of Hondias Capital Management, former Chief Executive Officer of Cantor Fitzgerald, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios.
Well, China remains aggressive in trying to support its economy via fiscal stimulus, while at the same time also lowering uh, its outlook for growth to six, eh, six to six and a half percent range. The question is, can they do both? Uh, to answer that question, we bring in Brendan uh, Ahern, Chief Investment Officer for Crane Shares based in New York City, he joins us on the phone. Uh, Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. So China clearly is remaining aggressive using the fiscal uh, fiscal stimulus tool in its toolbox. How successful do you think they will be? Well, Paul, I I do believe that things are uh, thus far showing. We're seeing those green shoots. Uh, We're seeing the stimulus slowly trickle down into some of the economic releases. We've probably not completely bottomed on from an economic or corporate earnings perspective. At the same time, uh, equity markets are forward looking. And I think the market is anticipating that the positive effect of stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, will be a good thing for the economy over for the for the economy over the course of this year. And uh, markets are rallying on that news. Brendan, does no one care about leverage anymore? I think they still do care about leverage. I think the Chinese particularly, you know, had pivoted to a uh, domestic agenda in 2016-2017 that was focused on deleveraging. However, the trade war, they've had to back burner that effort. Going forward, we're going to see more targeted credit growth, trying to get credit to small, medium enterprises, private companies, as opposed to the biggest state-owned enterprises. So how important, Brendan, are successful trade negotiations with the U.S. to supporting what the the Chinese government wants for its economy? I think for from an economic perspective, you know, China, there's parts of China that are a going through a boom time right now. Um, You know, like Shenzhen, um, no different than, you know, I was just out in San Francisco last week. Uh, There's parts of China that are, are doing poorly uh, no different than here in the United States. So, so I, I think export-driven manufacturers are facing a very, very difficult, challenging environment. Um, so they need to do support that really addresses the big, big geography, big economy that they have. Well, how about the, you know one of the things when you I was just looking at the Alibaba's recent results and boy, the consumer, the Chinese consumer seems uh, quite strong, and it's maybe stronger than one would expect. What is your sense about the Chinese consumer and consumer buying power? I think the rumors on the death of the Chinese consumer have been greatly exaggerated. Um, If one looks at the, say, service PMI, um, we see it's an expansion. We see this from the companies themselves. C-Trip reported um, after the market closes having a a very, very large rally today, right? This is an online travel company in China. So so I think where, where, where we want as investors to be focused on this domestic consumption, that's where a lot of the stimulus and support for the economy is taking place. They want to raise domestic consumption, push on that gas pedal. At the same time, if you look at multinationals such as like a, a Caterpillar, that's geared to the element of China's economy that's slowing, and I think investors want to avoid that aspect. How much has the uh, trade skirmish or trade disagreement, trade war, whatever you want to call it, how much has that affected the Chinese economy? So it, it, it's certainly affected an element of China's economy. Remember, China's uh, economy, uh, 50% is the service sector today, about 10% agriculture. So you do have a big element of, of China that is uh, geared to export-driven manufacturing. Um, Aggregate exports to the United States is less than 20% of China's overall exports, but obviously that, that's a very big percentage, and, and that has been very much hampered. Uh, at the same time, China is trying to support 
uh, domestic consumption to offset the weakness in, in one element of the economy. And so uh, it has had an effect on specific geographic areas, an element of China's economy, um, but not not the whole economy. Right. I think that's what something investors miss. So that, I'm just wondering, from the PMI perspective, the manufacturing data, the slowdown that we've seen there, which has been disproportionate, uh, for well, has it been disproportionate because of the trade issues? So, so certainly, manufacturing PMIs are. Um, both the national, you know, the the official as well as the Kaishin are, are are in negative tariff territory. They're below 50, which is deacceleration. At the same time, the non-manufacturing or the service PMIs are still um, in expansion territory. What's interesting, Lisa, is uh, using Google Trends. If you type China manufacturing PMI, you get a whole slew of results. You type China service PMI. No results. The, literally, it says there's no data to input that. So I think, in general, investors still view China as this export-driven manufacturing engine. That's not, that's not necessarily the reality today. Brendan Ahern, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Brendan is Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares in New York, talking to us about China. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.